Welcome back to Between the Levees. I'm joined today by Mr. Michael Benson, who I ran across in one of the many Facebook groups I'm participating in in the, uh, the tug and barge industry. But in this case, we'll be a little bit outside the levees, coming to us from New Jersey. Michael, thank you for joining me. Hey, good afternoon, Tim. You've seen a few of these. You know how they begin, sir. Tell me, where were you born? Um, well, I was born in Elizabeth, New Jersey, back in the 70s. Um, my parents, also Jersey natives. Uh, my father is a human resources guy, uh, didn't have much to do with water, and my mother's a registered nurse. So growing up was kind of in an urban thickly settled kind of place. Like I grew up on four lanes of traffic across the street from a Ford dealership. And it wasn't until going to school later that I got exposed to sort of more open settings, like up in New Hampshire, back around uh, 96 to 2000. Well, tell me about your life growing up and what eventually led you to, uh, to the water. Well, I was fortunate in that my grandparents had a small spot at the Jersey shore when I was very young, like, uh, from the age of like say two they had a little beach house in ocean gate which then at about the age of six they pivoted into this uh dilapidated waterfront house in a place called ladoka harbor new jersey now that's south of the toms river north of forked river on the barnegat bay where the cedar creek flows out into the barnegat bay and it was a place that you know it never made it beyond having finished plywood floors and salvaged houseboat windows in the house itself and sliding glass doors from a storm damaged arcade in the front of the house in other words they were just uh she was a glass factory worker my grandmother and my grandfather was a jersey city police officer so they did a lot with what they had and while it wasn't like a rich surrounding in the monetary sense it was rich in the sense that you know you had the waterfowl and you had the snappers in the lagoon and all this stuff blue fish on the bay and fluke uh so it was a rich uh, setting to grow up on the water. Now, I was fortunate enough that my youngest, uh, my mother's youngest sister, Carol, uh, found herself marrying a guy, Rich O'Leary. And the O'Learys were pivotal, pivotal in my life in the sense that they were Linden, New Jersey, where this refinery I'm sitting in happens to be, and as well as Ocean Gate type people. So they had a little bit of that shore influence now they were sailboat people like uh things like sunfishes lasers competitive sailing as a result of that i got into competitive sailing at a young age i was racing from the age of like 10 to 19 and i also raced uh bigger sailboats in adulthood out in wisconsin and taught sailing through my teenage years so a lot of small boat operations so i already had a basic command of knot tying and so forth. I was taught how to tie knots by a name, man named Burton Diesendorf, who was one of the founders of the Tom's River Seaport Society. He was very into Marlin spike things. Uh, he could splice wonderfully, knew how to do a number of sinnets. He could tie the knots all different ways. So, I mean, we, he always drummed in our head, our basic knots, you know, your sheet bend, square knots, clove hitches, figure eight, bowling, things like that. And I had an interest in maritime things, and I didn't have the sense to listen to my father when he brought me over to SUNY Maritime in my late teenage years and said, hey, you know, you like the water. There's people out here that do this. Maybe you want to think about it. Now, I was just a punk skateboard kid at the time. I didn't pay it a lot of attention. I said, nah, dad, that's not for me. And I didn't do it. 
So I went through life doing a number of different things. I ended up in the arts as a glass blower. I ended up working in the commercial salmon industry for a season, stacking corks and driving skiff for half the season. Um, I then, while working in retail fish market stuff, you know, filleting fish, staking fish, setting up a case, selling fish, shucking oysters, things like that. I identified that I wanted to further my personal life on the water, which is namely sailing. I got a couple uh, old sailboats that I use recreationally. Uh, so in order to get those, I needed to find a way to make more money. So I actually sent myself to nursing school. So I have a nursing degree, which I still utilize part-time in addition to my work in the maritime field. Uh, so basically what happened is I pivoted away from the full-time nursing in 2018 fall went on a sabbatical, helped an older gentleman move a boat down from Solomon's Island, Maryland to Daytona Beach, Florida via the ICW, at which point I decided I didn't want to do full-time nursing. I wanted to get into something more maritime related because I got my captain's license back in 16, just as a good thing to have, you know, mariners program, so forth. So I didn't have a lot of quality sea time. All my sea time is on like pretty small vessels. Um, so what I ultimately did is I approached a guy at a towboat US boat booth looking for work. I said, uh, do you have anything in assistance towing that I could uh, get into? I want to do, you know, things like that. He said, you know, I don't, but I have something over at the oil refinery in Linden. He said, you could take a look at that. So I give the human resources woman at Miller Marine Dawn a call up at Miller's and they bring me in. We talk about my background on the water and how I'm kind of looking to grow in that direction. And they sent me over here to the Bayway Refinery, and that's when I got introduced to uh, driving Boomboat. So, and here I am four and a half years later, still into it. Well, I know little to nothing about Boomboat, so tell me about that job. Well, Boomboat is basically this. There's a law in New Jersey that requires that vessels loading or offloading oil products be encapsulated and surrounded by a floating rubber wall. That floating rubber wall is called Boom. So. We operate with three different vessels here. They're aluminum work boats that have diesel uh, uh, diesel IOs. So, you know, you got Yanmar's paired to Merck Cruiser drives and Cummins paired to Merck Cruiser drives with uh, regular Morse controls. You're in a simple wheelhouse. And we basically store our boom flaked in bites. So you have lines hanging that you clip your lines in place. So say if it was a small barge approaching, you would let less lines go. So you don't have great as length of a boom to tow around. And then you basically tow that boom around the barge or ship. And then you bring it to the riser that floats up and down with the tide. And you connect the lead of the boom to that pigtail on the riser. And now you've encapsulated that barge or ship. So in the event that that barge were to leak, the oil would float to the top and be contained. And, uh, in the time I've been here, we've only had one serious spill event in which I believe a tankerman fell asleep on a barge when it was loading at one of the piers here. And uh, it resulted in like three days of cleaning up by our response team, but it largely mitigates the spread of the product. So it doesn't, you know, get up and down the kill here. Anything else to share about that? Uh, anything interesting? Any stories about that job there? Uh, so some things to share about it is uh, when we think about places like the Arthur Killer, say New York's East River, the, they're tidal straits. And they're interesting in that 
I think they mimic some of what river dynamics are. I mean, I don't know river dynamics, but I read a beautiful book by that uh, captain in Alabama that sells, sells a wonderful title on basically a lot of the rich knowledge that all you folks that work the inland rivers about how you know, you've got fast moving current on the inside and slower moving current on the inside and how that affects sediment deposition and how you've got to have enough point coming through a turn. So she stays on her. I mean, I don't know it. I mean, I've read things like blanks, modern towing. I've read primer on towing read. I have a slashing book on Z drives uh, another one of your guests that I spoke with, uh, I believe Royce Leg recommended the handling of tugs in port, which I intend on acquiring. So I'm kind of like in a feed my brain stage of the maritime field. And I'm kind of got inspired by your podcast and also that book where that woman interviewed 100 captains through the years on the on the Mississippi upper lower and throughout Um I believe I want to grow in tonnage in some way. Like, in other words, I want greater responsibility and higher skill maritime work. Like this is small vessels. It does take some skill in the sense that I'll deal with anywhere from like, say three quarters of a knot to a knot and a half a current, which I know isn't much coming from some of these river situations, but it's an introduction to moving water and how it's a dynamic process. Um, I just feel I want to do more and I want to grow. I mean, and then, because here's the thing, like this particular job, it, um, it's a lot of downtime. You do utilize boat skills, such as not tying awareness of boat handling, all sorts of things like that. But um, to me, it's not a destination. Like in other words, there's something more. Now I could talk a little bit on what, I've done for the parent company at times I've filled in at points doing launch captain over on New York Harbor. And what that is, is they run a service in which say um, gaugers or inspectors or coast guard individuals or pilots or whoever needs to get to or from a vessel in New York Harbor. Miller's launch has passenger launches that they will run individuals out and back from different vessels. So that was a fun thing to experience in the sense that you do some on the fly pickups and drop-offs. Like you'll match speed with the ship that's say moving like, I don't know, six knots, eight knots, something like that. And you're real close to the ship. And then you'll turn gently into the ship and clutch up and forward. And you'll just pin your nose on there and you're on. And then once you're fixed in position, that pilot's going to come down the ladder, step onto your bow and then come on into your cabin. And at that point, you just turn away and the bow wave that's formed between your picked off boat on the side of the ship's hull, it just kind of pushes you off and you separate. And uh, I did enjoy driving that sort of thing in the sense that I've, I have, I've liked to think decent boat handling for small vessels in the sense that I've, you know, understand basic things about uh, usage of rudders and props and i mean i'm not king of the world or anything but i do okay driving the uh 48 footer that rutgers has and i'm trying to learn speaking of rutgers uh tell me about what you're doing for them well that was a fortunate thing in the sense that i bumped into a gentleman that had been working there from all the time since he was a student so he's about 25 years to it his name is roland a nice guy so he was in taking a glass blowing class at a studio at uh, Maker Station down in uh, West Creek. 
His son hadn't taken the class. So Roland comes by and we get to talk and we realize we're both water people. So he says, Hey, you know, we're going to be looking to hire an assistant captain at some point. Would you be interested when it comes open? I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. So finally he emails me one day and I just get together my, uh, you know, cover letter, resume, all that, get it moving. And I interviewed and the thing that set me apart that enabled me to um, get in there is there a real small organization from an operational perspective that kind of operates on a shoestring in some respects so like they interviewed some other captains and they ask them a question and they say well i'd have my engineer and it's like well wait you don't have an engineer here like in other words um it's everything from varnishing things to painting things to changing hydraulic hoses to you know it's it's anything and everything the job's probably only 15 percent driving boat and 85 percent maintaining boat but that's okay um so yeah i got brought in there and i work alongside another captain captain chip holdeman who's been there for some time as well and basically we work under the scientific department deploying a number of different types of instrumentation that listen for previous chipped fish and also use various types of sonar to visualize things going on in the bottom and occasionally they do simple uh saning runs to show different uh students like what kind of things exist in the bay in different areas and uh, I know very little about the scientific side of it, to be perfectly frank, but um, it's a it's a thing I like being involved in, and uh, I just view it as another step in my development. So, and you said before I hit record that you spent some time in Alaska relatively recently. Tell me about uh, that. Yeah, so I worked for a captain, uh, Tim Gossett, on the Laguna Star out of Kodiak. And what that was, was just a regular 44-foot saner with a at that time, it was a prop-driven skiff, not a jet skiff. And so basically the 101 on salmon fishing, seining in Alaska is you have a third of a mile long seine that is 60 foot deep. And the way it works is either the big boat or the skiff pulls the net in close to the shore. Now you have the current, the fish wish to swim against it. Now, when the fish hit that wall of net in the water, they have a strategy to try to bypass it. And that strategy is go deeper and go further out. But you thought a step ahead and you made your net shaped like a letter J. So once they get out in that bottom of the letter J, they swim in circles. That's called the hook. And they just, they get a little confused and turn around there. So eventually what you do is you pull the lead of your net from the shallow side, bring it back towards the big boat, pass the net off, separate your skiff from it you pick up a bridle off the stern so now your job is to hold the boat off of the net so because if you push your boat on the net you push your corks down the fish could get out meanwhile they're pulling the net in through the hydraulic belt block and the rigging and you're stacking it on the deck as you do so and you got to make sure you stack it high enough because if you don't you'll just lose deck space until you find yourself with half the net to go but only like five feet of deck left. And then you're in a bit of a spot. So it's like anything else. There's things you have to know about it, but that was a lot of fun. I, uh, the, probably the best story I could tell about that is we were fishing by this one spot, uh, by the mainland. I want to say it's called bird bluffs or something. It's across the Gulf of Alaska from uh, Kodiak and the net sometimes as you're pulling it back to the big boat you'll see a hard point in your corks and that'll mean that the bottom of your net got caught on something 
and she's not coming free to get you from where you're going. So what you have to do in that situation is you pull the net back around where your hard point is, pull on the other side to get it off and around that hard point. And then you have to drive your boat between where you snag and where you pulled the net to, to then pull free to get it to the uh, boat. And that's kind of a lot of fun. Like sometimes the fun stuff is when you're a little bit in the weeds, like nobody wants to get in the weeds, but sometimes it's a little bit interesting the things we need to do to sort of get things back on a level playing field when things go a little bit awry on the water but uh yeah it was it was a beautiful experience alaska and then uh, any highlights about your trip down the coast via sailboat and then i think you said about two years ago you crossed the gulf of mexico now the gulf of mexico let's come back to that because that was an incredible experience and i've got a lot of talking points on that but the trip down the icw frankly was more of just day runs from marina to marina with an older gentleman now the older gentleman is a guy jay madden he's an incredible guy that uh had a lot to do with a family that sold socks for years and years they had like the oldest fiber mill in new york or something and He's got a good heart and he uh, likes Irish whiskey and some beer and friendly man, jovial attitude. And it was really like coming at a time in my life where there were some things I kind of needed to sort of improve myself and do a little better. And he was sharing some past, less, uh, past lessons in his life and stories of say marriage has gone awry and marriage has gone well. And it was just like a really human experience. It really was barely about the boat. Like, in other words, sure, you anchored some and sure you tied up in slips and sure you took fuel, but it was like a very human interpersonal thing, sharing a boat over that distance, which it always is when you're, uh, you know, aboard a boat for some time with some persons. Now, the situation with crossing the Gulf in the spring of 21, that's a little background. My boat I bought called uh, Walrus. That's a West Sail 32 heavy displacement cutter. Um, it's 32 foot on deck, 40 foot overall, weighs uh, 20,000 pounds, which is kind of heavy for a recreational sailboat. Anyway, I impulse bought it from California from a lawyer that had brought it back from the dead. It had sat idle in a slip for like 18 years. At a tr- it had a uh, transmission failure. So, um, yeah, so my cousin runs a sailing program uh, in New Orleans, and the slips down there are very affordable. I was paying about eighteen fifty for a calendar year for a 40-foot slip for my boat. I couldn't afford to truck it all the way home to Jersey when I purchased it. So finally, after doing all the projects I needed to to have it in shape to be ready for a crossing, I depart in um, spring of, I want to say it was like March 28th or something. And we head on out into the Mississippi Sound, out the Wrigley's from New Orleans, and we slip out through Dog Pass underneath Cat Island and some things like that. And as the evening's going on, the winds are building. So I throw a reef in at like, say, 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Second reef goes in at maybe like 10 p.m. Third reef in at like 0100 on the 29th. And we positively got our butts kicked. Now, I didn't manage my fatigue well. I had two other persons aboard with me, my friend Lorraine, who's quite a trooper, and my friend Dana, who nice guy, but he, uh, he really went to pieces pretty early and that just is what it was. So we just left him in the bunk. And after a night of getting our butts beat out in some pretty decent swell in the Gulf, um, Dana wasn't into it anymore. I had to take him back into mobile 
uh, Mobile Bay. And then we made uh, through the ICW over to Pensacola, where we were going to make it out that night, say the 30th. But then when we realized our solenoid has failed on our stove, we elected to take a slip that night, get some hardware to bypass and make our uh, galley stove work because I didn't want to make a two, three day passage with no stove. And we go out there. So I was expecting a cold front to pass over that night when we finally went out on the 31st. And we decided to go with bear poles when the when the uh, when it passed over. It was windy, probably not much more than 25, but the thing about it was, is the wind stayed up. And by the time it was the following afternoon and the following night and the morning after, it was pretty big out there. Um, I'd say it looked to be every bit of like 12 foot from 12, from trough to peak, but I don't know for sure. All I know, all I remember is one particular time my stern got lifted up high and my bow looked like it was going to stuff. And it's very broad and buoyant up there and it didn't stuff, but just, boo, <laughs> I haven't spent a whole lot of time in open, unprotected water. You know what I mean? Most of my life, I, I live a backwater bay life and I probably have fewer than like, let's say a thousand miles of offshore miles if I were to estimate. So yeah, it was quite an eye opener to how, uh, how serious the Gulf of Mexico is. So basically on that crossing, I got war really thin. I was way tired. I ended up, I, I'm pretty sure I banged my knee on my hard dinghy that was lashed to the cabin coach roof when I was near Pensacola, excuse me, where I was near Tampa Bay and my knee swelled up and my leg couldn't bend. And we had to turn in at Pensacola, excuse me, I keep saying it wrong. I had to turn in at like Tampa. Now I found a gentleman from the internet that was willing to help me move the boat to Jacksonville afterward to lay it up because I couldn't make Key West in New Jersey as I had initially planned. It was to be like a five-week trip from New Orleans to Jersey and all this stuff. But with my injury, I had to cut that short. Um, ended up laying it up over by Lake Okeechobee, found a very nice place near Moorhaven. The Okeechobee Waterway was absolutely a fantastic experience. As long as you don't have greater than, I'd say, 45 foot of air draft. And I'm not sure what uh, controlling depth is for the boat's draft, but it was a treat to go through there. I don't know, kind of rambled on that. But basically, you do have to manage fatigue and the, the ocean and the gulf, it just doesn't quit. It'll just keep on handing you your butt. So yeah anything else you'd like to share about your life your career or this show um i i guess the 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 best thing i can share is i'm grateful for other people that share what they're doing out there on the water and give their thoughts on which way to go or which way to jump because i'm in the early stages of deciding on whether i want to go like a cape may lose ferry kind of i know that's not between the levee and i know it's not hardcore but it is slightly maritime it is home at night and so forth i also consider a variety of towing companies that are here in the northeast and i question whether i want to do anything like that um yeah i guess i'm trying to figure out what's the right way for me to go on the water because realistically i feel i came at it backwards like in other words people that start commercial maritime you've already seen the big things and you do the big things and you develop and you find your path that way. 
I started um, on the recreational side of things. And I think that's a real handicap because first off, a lot of times recreational people, they, they don't read enough. They don't develop enough. They're ignorant of things. And that's the difference between professional and the weekend warriors. And I, I just, I just think it's important to show potential newcomers the way in like in other words you could go here and do this and then you could go there and do that like i'm or my my next step i need to take i'm pretty sure i need to get an ab ticket like i have a uh, 100 ton inland master's license but i realistically feel i have to take a step backwards to develop foundational knowledge to even have a hope of applying it like in other words other than simple boats, I don't think I have any business doing much else with it yet. You know what I mean? So just trying to figure out how to, how to grow. Well, hopefully one of these listeners or viewers might uh, have an idea for you. We'll put some contact info in the description here. I thank you, Tim. I, uh, I enjoy interacting with everybody on your threads. There's been a lot of great people already, uh, particularly would like to thank Royce Leg and, uh, there was another individual that gave me a great message outlining some things recently as well. I, I appreciate all the professionals that have shared in your podcast and thank you to you as well. We'll keep at it, sir. Thanks a lot. All right. We'll do Tim. Thank you. Talk to you soon. This has been a production of where you at studios, LLC.